Exodus chapter 20, verse 10. But the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord thy God. In it thou shalt not do any work, thou, nor thy son, nor thy daughter, thy manservant, nor thy maidservant, nor thy cattle, nor the stranger that is within thy gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that in them is, and rested the seventh day. Wherefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. This is a verse that should be known to every Adventist. This is a verse that we read constantly. It is the Sabbath truth. It is the hallmark of what we believe as Adventists. In it is contained God's creative act. In it is contained a testimony that God created everything in this world. He did it in six days. There are also other aspects of this verse that we sometimes gloss over and that have an impact on the creation truth and on the Sabbath truth that we have come to honor and obey as part of what we believe. We're going to be looking at this verse, and in expansion, everything that we've talked about will be leading toward this meeting that we've come to today. God has made the animal life. God has created the animal life that we see around us. We have shown multiple examples this uh, morning and this afternoon of the way that God has created the animal life and shows that it is his creation. Now, in this meeting, this is the first time I've ever given this meeting in this way. I have put together this meeting over the last uh, few weeks and months, and this is its uh, unveiling, so to speak. This is the first time I've given. I have not had a chance to practice this meeting at all. And so uh, I've been giving the other presentation that you've seen for about a year. This is far more complex in its PowerPoint presentation than anything I did this morning. Um, I'm having transitions that have to be exactly at the certain word and various things like that. So this is a much, much tighter presentation than the one I did uh, earlier. And so I'm going to be tied much more closely to my notes than I was earlier. You saw me free-forming it a great deal this morning. You're not going, to, not going to see that anymore because I have to be exactly where I need to change it and things like that. So I hope you'll bear with me a little bit on that. But we'll be going into this now. And uh, like I said, we'll be done at sundown, and there will be time for questions as long as you want afterwards. One of the most deeply held beliefs, um, <clears throat> one of the most deeply held beliefs of mankind is that human beings are the absolute masters of the earth. In our society, many of the practices that we do impact upon the lives of animals in a variety of ways. What is our duty as Adventist Christians to the animals around us? Is there any debt we owe them, or are we free to ignore the results of their actions? And again, the lights, if possible, um, it's better to be dim because the most of the presentation will be seen up there. This presentation that I will be going through is an attempt to answer that question from the Word of God. There is a text that we as Adventists are very familiar with. In Matthew 5:48, Jesus tells his disciples, Be ye therefore perfect, even as your Father in heaven is perfect. Now, this does not mean that we will be exactly uh, perfect, in the, uh, absolutely perfect in the same way that God is, but instead we need to have the same type of character as God. God's motives, values, and way of dealing with us, as shown by the life of Christ, are to be our motives, values, and way of dealing with others. The importance of of having this experience is found in Christ's Object Lessons, page 69. When the character of Christ shall be perfectly reproduced in his people, then he will come to claim them as his own. Everything we do should be measured by what Christ would do in the same situation. The character we develop now will be taken unchanged into heaven. Only the body will be made new. It doesn't matter if a person dies and is resurrected or is amongst the final generation that lives to see his coming. 
All will have the character we have developed here taken straight to heaven. We are to make every effort to live on earth as we will live in heaven. Every right principle, every truth learned in an earthly school will advance us just that much in the heavenly school. Maranatha, page 327. So it becomes our duty to discover the right principles that have been revealed for us to, to, to learn. We will focus on one of those principles here. Now we begin with one of the most famous texts in the Bible. I have found that virtually every Christian is familiar with it, as are many non-Christians. In Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, we have this verse. And God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the fowl of the air, and over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth. This is the text always used to show that whatever we do to the animal creation is accepted and sanctioned by God. It is the divine mandate that justifies any action that we choose. But are we completely sure we have applied this verse correctly? What is the principle being given here? The answer to that question will determine how we apply that principle, the dominion principle, to our daily lives. In Colossians 1, verse 16, For by him were all things created that are in heaven and that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created by him and for him. Everything in this world has been created by and for God, including ourselves and everything around us. All of the animals were created by, by Christ. As Psalms 50, verses 10 and 11 shows, God claims all animal life as his own. For every beast of the forest is mine, and the cattle upon a thousand hills. I know all the fowls of the mountains, and the wild beasts of the field are mine. We cannot own what belongs to God. The most that we can be are caretakers. In Genesis, Christ did not give us ownership of the animals. He gave us dominion. Now, what does the word then dominion really mean? We need to find out what it meant to the original writers and readers of the Bible, given in context. In 1 Kings 4, verses 24 to 25, we have the same Hebrew word dominion that we found in Genesis. For he had dominion over all the region on this side of the river, over all the kings on this side of the river. And he had peace on all sides around about him. And Judah and Israel dwelt safely, every man under his vine and under his fig tree. King Solomon's dominion is regarded here as a very positive, beneficial thing. Further, in Psalm 72, verses 2 to 17, is a model of how a good king is to rule over his subjects. He shall judge thy people with righteousness, and thy poor with judgment. The mountains shall bring peace to the people, and the little hills by righteousness. He shall judge the poor of the people. He shall save the children of the needy, and shall break in pieces the oppressor. He shall come down like rain upon the mown grass, as showers that water the earth. In his days shall the righteous flourish, an abundance of peace so long as the moon endureth. He shall have dominion also from sea to sea and from the rivers unto the ends of the earth. For he shall deliver the needy when he crieth, the poor also and him that hath no helper. He shall spare the poor and needy and shall save the souls of the needy. He shall redeem their soul from deceit and violence and precious shall their blood be in his sight. And he shall live and to him shall be given of the gold of Sheba. Prayer also shall be given to him continually and daily shall he be praised. His name shall endure forever. His name shall be continued as long as the sun, and men shall be blessed in him. All nations shall call him blessed. Now, I'm sure that we would agree that these uh, passages describe a king doing everything exactly as he should. He has dominion over his subjects, and they praise him for it. He is blessed. 
This is a beautiful description of what dominion means to God. Yet there's more to it than that. Verses 4 to 8 are mentioned in Patriarchs and Prophets, page 754 to 755, as a promise that was given to David, which finds its complete fulfillment in Christ. Christ is to have dominion from sea to sea, from the river unto the ends of the earth. As David says in Psalms 103, verse 19, The Lord hath prepared his throne in the heavens, and his kingdom ruleth over all. Jesus is our king. He has dominion over humans in the same way that we have dominion over the animals. To understand how we should exercise our dominion, we must first understand how he exercises his dominion over us. This is the dominion principle. God is over us in the same way that we are over the animals. If we can understand this principle, we will have gone a long way to understanding our role in God's creation. We've seen in Psalms how Christ exercises his dominion. Now, in Genesis 1, verses 28 to 29, we see how our dominion responsibility is to be handled. And God blessed them, and God said unto them, Be fruitful, and multiply, and replenish the earth, and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the fowls of the air, and over every living thing that moveth upon the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every herb-bearing seed, which is upon the face of the earth, and to every tree in the which is the fruit of a tree-yielding seed. To you it shall be for meat. Now, what was included here in Adam's dominion? One glaring thing not included was the eating of animals, as verse 29 makes very clear. Adam's duty is illuminated further in Genesis 2, verse 15. And the Lord God took the man and put him into the Garden of Eden to dress it and keep it. Adam was the caretaker of Eden. He, was, he had a responsibility to it. It was a mutually beneficial system. Adam was the steward of God's created works. He was God's caretaker, taking care of God's creations. Adam's dominion was no tyrannical, dictatorial exploitation. This is the beauty of God's dominion, that those he has dominion over praise him for it. Doesn't Adam's dominion here sound a lot like the dominion expressed in Psalms? This is God's dominion. This is how it is in Eden, in the new earth and in heaven. Upward look, page 291. Our work in this world is to reveal the pure principles that are current in heaven. But like every other principle of God, Satan has created a counterfeit. He has warped our concept of God's dominion over us. He is, is believed to be a tyrant, a predestining God, who chooses who will be saved and who will burn in hell. God is said to send natural disasters to wipe out homes and lives. They're called acts of God, when in reality is Satan responsible for these things. When children die of starvation and when friends die from accidents or diseases, we are told to lay the blame on God. All of this is Satan's version of God's dominion. And of course, Satan has his own version of our dominion over the animals. Satan's dominion versus God's dominion. Whatever doesn't fall into, into God's dominion must fall into Satan's dominion. <clears throat> if we are not following God's plan, then we are following Satan's plan. So what is God's plan, God's dominion? When sin entered the world, we now have permission to kill animal life. The question becomes then, when is it acceptable to take the life of an animal? To answer that question, we must first look at God's example with us. When it is acceptable to take a human life, under what circumstances does God allow or direct the taking of human life? 
Well, first of all is capital punishment. Spelled out in the Old Testament is a detailed list of crimes that warranted the death penalty under Israel's theocracy. Secondly, self-defense. This applied not only to the individual, but also when Israel was being attacked by other nations. Thirdly, God's command. Israel was to destroy all the Canaanites out of the land, without exception. When Achan was found guilty, his entire family and household were stoned as well, even though Achan himself was the only one who had committed the crime. There are many instances where God himself or his human agents killed others at God's command. These three categories cover the killing of humans allowed by God in the Old Testament. Now we can discover when it is allowed to kill an animal based on these same principles. Now the first category for humans, capital punishment, does not apply to animals since because they are incapable of knowing the law of God, they are incapable of knowingly breaking it. So for the first category for animals is self-defense. If an animal attacks a human being, it is acceptable to kill that particular animal. An obvious example of this is David and the lion. But this does not extend to the entire species as a whole, but only to the individual animal involved in the act. This is the same as with humans. Killing a human in self-defense does not mean we can kill that person's relatives and friends. Secondly, God's command. Two main areas are included in this. First off is animal sacrifice. Immediately after sin, God commanded sacrifice. In Leviticus, they were structured and organized. All of these pointed to Christ's sacrifice and were intended to bring home to man the horror of sin, the vileness of every act committed against God. But what God commands was fulfilled. When type met anti-type and the sacrificial system reached its completion upon the cross, God made it very clear that the sacrifices of Israel were to end. So now one area where God commanded animal killing has been repealed. The second area is the killing of animals for food. Now, this started after the flood in Genesis 9, verse 4. In, at this point, it was in, key restrictions were laid down at the exact same time that permission to eat meat was allowed. The clean animals only were to be eaten, as specifically spelled out in the Levitical law. But the most important restriction is in verse 4. But flesh with the life thereof, which is the blood thereof, shall ye not eat. No blood was ever to be eaten. The Levitical law spelled it out in detail in Leviticus 17. Is this command obeyed by anyone today other than Orthodox Jews? Ezekiel 33, verses 25 to 26, lists the eating of blood along with idol worship, murder, and adultery as Israel's chief sins. This indicates how serious God considers this crime. Now, some people claim that the restrictions were part of the ceremonial law that were done away with at the cross. But as shown just now, the prohibition against eating blood was predating the Levitical law by over a thousand years. It continued to be the rule for a growing body of Christians, even after the death of Christ, and became stated in official church policy in Acts 15, verses 28 to 29. For it seemed good to the Holy Ghost and to us to lay upon you no greater burden than these necessary things, that ye abstain from meats offered to idols, and from blood, and from things strangled, and from fornication, from which if ye keep yourselves, ye shall do well. Paul reaffirms this policy in Acts 21, verse 25. So 
Far from being abandoned at the cross, it was actually entrenched as church policy to be continued by all faithful church members from that point forward. It was only during the Middle Ages that apostate Christianity ignored this as they ignored so many other of the Bible's teachings. Now, if the Christian basis for the permission to eat meat is from the Bible, then why don't Christians follow the entire mandate? Obviously, because bloodless meat is tasteless meat. All the flavor is in the blood. This suggests that the ability of the post-flood humans to eat meat was intended to be a necessity, not a pleasure. Ellen White confirms this on Councils and Diets and Foods, page 373. But on the same page, she gives a second reason why meat-eating was allowed after the flood. God saw that the ways of man were corrupt, and he permitted that long-lived race to eat animal food to shorten their sinful lives. Soon after the flood, the race began to rapidly decrease in size and in length of years. So, in effect, it was a discipline for the race's wickedness. Those today who argue for meat-eating based upon the Bible's allowance are, in effect, arguing to be disciplined and to have the lives shortened based on their meat-eating. Now, if meat-eating was a necessity, that leads to the conclusion that when it was no longer a necessity, it would no longer be done. Less advanced cultures in all ages since have had a justifiable need for meat when better food was unavailable. But does that apply to us today in the United States and other developed countries where every conceivable food is available? A century ago, Ellen White extensively detailed how meat was not only unnecessary, but harmful. We are in the last days, the final atonement, when we should be striving to rid ourselves of the world's attractions. As God gives new light to his people, he expects them to utilize it. Spalding and McGann Collection, page 46. After the fall, the eating of flesh was suffered. In order to shorten the period of the existence of the long-lived race, it was allowed because of the hardness of the hearts of men. As we move into the 21st century, God has clearly spelled out a better way. Will we continue to harden our hearts to his will? The next question that we need to examine is, when is it acceptable to cause an animal to suffer? Again, we must first examine when we can cause a human being to suffer. First of all is discipline. Spanking a child, locking up a thief, giving leprosy to Elisha's servant, wandering 40 years in the wilderness, letting cause and effect run its course in all its myriad forms, All are forms of discipline. Secondly, to save life. An example is an operation that causes pain but saves the patient's life. Removing a gangrenous limb is an obvious example, as is eating broccoli, one of the worst forms of torture ever invented on the planet. (laughs) So what then about animals? There are many in our society who say that animals do not suffer or suffer far less than we do. Now, why would that be? So we have to examine this. Because they're different from us is the reason given. They are totally different from us. There's nothing the same between animals and people. So what really separates humans and animals? We have to know this. We have to find out. Ask an evolutionist that question 60 years ago, and he would have glibly rattled off a whole list of differences that separate the human species from all other life forms on the planet. Ask that same evolutionist that same question today, and he will scratch his head and jump through hoops to try to come up with something, indeed anything, that evolutionists still hold that separates human beings from animals. Every difference evolutionists held have crumbled in the face of modern discoveries of animal behavior, tool use, 
modifying of the surroundings, existence of culture, art, language, are all now known to exist in animals. So, ask a mainline Christian then, what is the difference between humans and animals? And it's very easy for them to answer to this day. Humans have an immortal soul and animals don't. Adventists have discarded the concept of the immortal soul, but unfortunately our attitudes toward animals have remained unchanged. How was man created? Genesis 2, verse 7. And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul. The, the word in Hebrew for soul is nephesh. Now you take away the breath of life at the, at the time of death, and man ceases to be a living soul. So what about the animals? Genesis 7, verse 15. And they went in unto Noah, into the ark, two and two of all flesh, wherein is the breath of life. So animals have the breath of life. In Genesis 1, 20, verse 24. And God said, let the waters bring forth abundantly the moving creature that, ha that hath life. And again, we have the same Hebrew word nephesh, referring to the living creature. Let the earth bring forth the living creature, nephesh, after his kind. And then we have in Genesis 2, verse 19. And out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every fowl of the air and brought them unto Adam to see that he, what he would call them. And whatsoever Adam called every living creature, nephesh, it was the name thereof. In Revelation, we have verse 16, verse 3. And the second angel poured out his vial upon the sea, and it became as the blood of a dead man, and every living soul died in the sea. Just as man has the breath of life and therefore is a living soul, therefore also do animals have the breath of life and therefore are living souls. They are identical to us in that respect. The only defining difference that sets us apart from animals is that humans were created in the image of God. That, in its most important aspect, means that we have a conscience that can choose between right and wrong. But in terms of biological pain and suffering, there is no difference. They are the same as we are, with the same biological feelings that we do. We feel pain because we are vertebrates with a nervous system, and all vertebrate animals with a nervous system have the same capacity to feel pain. Our vertebra protects our spinal cord. From our spinal cord radiates nerves that lead to every part of our body. The free nerve endings are what register pain, heat, and cold. All animals with a vertebra have a spinal cord and nervous system like ours. Their free nerve endings register pain, heat, and cold like ours do. Animals with a vertebra are divided into five groups. Mammals, including humans, birds, reptiles, fish, and amphibians. All of these animals feel pain in the same way that we do. Animals feel with emotions. Animals have intelligence. They think things out and make choices based on their experiences. Entire books have been written documenting cases of animal emotion and animal intelligence. I could spend nothing, uh, I could spend an entire week doing nothing but relating examples of animals using their intel intelligence to solve problems or showing their feelings based on various circumstances. But I don't need to since we have Ellen White giving us exactly that statement showing what the animals feel. <clears throat> In the Ministry of Healing, page 315 to 316, as I read this, remember and ask yourself three questions. Do animals have intelligence? Do animals experience emotions? And do animals suffer? The intelligence displayed by many dumb animals approaches so closely to human intelligence that it is a mystery. 
The animals see and hear and love and fear and suffer. They use their organs far more faithfully than many human beings use theirs. They manifest sympathy and tenderness toward their companions in suffering. Many animals show an affection for those who have charge of them, far superior to the affection shown by some of the human race. They form attachments for many which are not broken without great suffering to them. Animals experience physical suffering, such as pain, heat, and cold. Animals experience emotional suffering, such as loss, unhappiness, and terror. So since we have shown that they suffer as we do, we can now go back and answer our question of when we can and when we cannot cause them to suffer. As with taking of life, causing suffering is the same as with humans. Number one, discipline. We use a leash to prevent the dog from chasing the neighbors. We spay and neuter dogs and cats to prevent them from harming themselves or others. We are, where ducks gather to nest, we put up electric fences to shock any fox out to eat the eggs. My grandfather raised chickens for much of his life, and in the process, some of the hens would get into the very bad habit of egg eating, in which they would devour their own eggs. This had to be stopped, and it had to be stopped right now before it spread to any of the other chickens. And so my grandfather had an especially effective uh, form of discipline that he used on the chickens in order to stop them from doing this. He would take an egg, break it open slightly, fill it up with extra strong, super hot sauce, the most powerful he could possibly find. He would put it back out in the coop. Very soon it was obvious which chickens were guilty of egg eating and which chickens were innocent of egg eating. The ones that were innocent were as they had always appeared to be, no problem. The ones that were guilty were wandering around with a dazed look on their face, bill hanging open, panting, as they tried to recover from the dosage they had gotten of the uh, extra strong pepper. It was very quickly that all the chickens were innocent of egg eating. It was a discipline that worked very, very well. It was extremely effective. So, secondly, we have, we can discipline animals, uh, and when, secondly, we can save their life in causing suffering and pain to them. Taking an animals to a vet terrifies them, but it's necessary. Giving them medicine or restricting their food also is sometimes important. So now, up to this point, we have looked at the principles that relate to what is permitted in our actions against animals. But what about in our responsibilities and duties for them? Desire of Ages, page 500. The merciful provisions of the law extended even to the lower animals, which cannot express in words their want and suffering. Mrs. White then quotes Exodus 20, verses 4 to 5 that I read before, and she shows how this was meant to relieve the work animal's suffering because the cattle were not to work on the Sabbath as well. And she says specifically that was to reduce the amount of work that they had to do. It was not just a benefit for the people, it was a benefit for the animals as well. The verse that sums it up is Proverbs 12.10. A righteous man regardeth the life of his beast, but the tender mercies of the wicked are cruel. The first half of this verse is God's dominion. The second half of this verse is Satan's dominion. Mrs. White expands this in the Signs of the Times, November 25, 1880. <clears throat> Here is a lesson to all who have reasoning powers, that harsh treatment, even to the brutes, is offensive to God. Those who profess to love God do not always consider that abuse to animals or suffering brought upon them by neglect is a sin. The fruits of divine grace will be as truly revealed in men by the manner in which they treat their beasts as by their service in the house of God. Those who allow themselves to become impatient or enraged with their animals are not Christians. 
a man who is harsh, severe, and domineering toward the lower animals, because he has them in his power, he is both a coward and a tyrant. If animals could speak, what deeds of horror would be revealed? What tales of suffering because of the perversity of man's temper? How often these creatures of God's care suffer pain, endure hunger and thirst because they cannot make known their wants. And how often is it determined by the mercy or caprice of man whether they receive attention and kindness or neglect and abuse? Punishment given in passion to an animal is frequently excessive, and then absolute cruelty. Animals have a kind of dignity and self-respect akin to that possessed by human beings. If abused under the influence of blind passion, their spirits will be crushed, and they will become nervous, irritable, and ungovernable. Why do we as Adventists promote vegetarianism? Is it only because it's healthier? If we think that the only reason to avoid meat is because of our own health, then we are ignoring a vast area of Ellen White's statements on this topic. She has as much to say about the cruelty to animals involved as any other reason. Even if meat was perfectly healthy, it would still be wrong based on the cruelty to animals involved in the processing of it. The following are only a few of her many statements on this topic. <clears throat> Manuscript releases, volume 7, page 423. I might fill pages with descriptions of the sights I have seen, the suffering upon the animals that are to be used for food. When a sheep in a flock lies down and cannot rise, the others leap over or upon it as they proceed. A large box wagon follows the flock, and I have seen the drivers take up the heavy sheep when unable to travel further and bounce them into the wagon, right upon their backs. And I have counted no less than eight sheep, some already dead, and others in the agonies of death, lying by the roadside after the flock had passed. But I will not go on to describe these sickening sights. If I had not prior to this time discarded the use of the flesh of dead animals, I should now take the pledge to eat no more meat as long as fruits and vegetables can be obtained." Manuscript releases, volume 7, pages 421 to 422. We saw a large herd of cattle in the road ahead of us. Some animals had been wounded. Some were limping along. One poor suffering creature had both horns broken off close to his head, and the blood was flowing from the wound. Some were very lame and were pictures of brute misery. Taken from the green paddocks and traveling for weary miles over the hot, dusty road, these poor creatures are driven to their death, that human beings may feast on their miserable, dead carcasses. Manuscript releases, volume 3, page 306. Your wrong habits of eating have so educated your moral powers that you have not the spirit of a Christian. Your temper is perverse, and your treatment of dumb animals is wrong. This is from several pages on councils and diets and foods between pages 380 and 386. Not an ounce of flesh meat should enter our stomachs. How much? It's just too bad that Ellen White was not clear enough on this topic, that she didn't make herself really focused enough to get our attention to wake us up to what uh, exactly she meant on this very difficult issue. The eating of flesh is unnatural. Let them rather return to the wholesome and delicious food given to man in the beginning and, practice, and themselves practice mercy toward the dumb creatures that God has made and has placed under our dominion. Will the people who are seeking to become holy, pure, refined, that they may be introduced into the society of heavenly angels, continue to take the life of God's creatures and enjoy their flesh as a luxury? Many who are now only half converted on the question of meat-eating will go from God's people to walk no more with them. Think of the cruelty to animals that meat-eating involves and its effect on those who inflict and those who behold it, how it destroys the tenderness with which we should regard these creatures of God. 
Animals are often transported long distances and subjected to great suffering in reaching a market. Taken from the green pastures and traveling for weary miles over the hot, dusty roads, or crowded, in, crowded into filthy cars, feverish and exhausted, often for many hours deprived of food and water, the poor creatures are driven to their death that human beings may feast on their carcasses. <clears throat> Some animals are inhumanely treated while being brought to the slaughter. They are literally tortured, and after they have endured many hours of extreme suffering, are butchered. The question is often asked, is it a sin to eat meat? The only way to answer this is to see what the Bible and the spirit of prophecy have told us on this issue. As we have seen, to eat any animal with the blood still in it is totally forbidden. It makes no difference if it is a clean meat or not. To eat a chicken or a cow with the blood still in it is as much of a sin as to eat a pig. Ellen White has made it clear that to eat meat when better foods are available is no longer permitted for us in these last days of history. For example, Councils on Diets and Foods, page 390. In a country such as this, where there are fruits, grains, and nuts in abundance, how can one think that he must eat the flesh of dead animals? Councils on Diets and Foods, page 391. We have plenty of good things to satisfy hunger without bringing corpses upon our table to compose our bill of fare. So, the answer to the question is, it is a sin to eat meat if better food is available or if we are eating blood-containing meat, which is all the meat available on restaurants and supermarket shelves, unless it's specifically listed as kosher. The Bible and Spirit of Prophecy are very clear about this. Now, in the centuries since Mrs. White wrote her strong statements condemning the way we use animals for food, we have developed a new way of raising animals called factory farming. The animals killed for food today are completely removed from the old McDonald's farm of the past. Factory farming is biz big business. Whatever, cost, whatever is cost-effective is the only consideration. Mass-produced chickens and turkeys are raised in warehouses. As they grow to full size, they become a solid mass of birds with no space to spare. Far overcrowded, they literally rub each other raw. The weaker are trampled to death. Disease spreads like wildfire. Injured and diseased birds are left untreated until they die. Pigs and many cows are also kept in closed concrete stalls. They are fed whatever fattens them quickest, not what keeps them healthy. To prevent disease, they receive massive amounts of antibiotics, in the long run making them even more unhealthy. Pigs are actually as intelligent as dogs and have complex emotions. An undercover reporter of conditions in a factory farm each morning found all the pigs sleeping together in a group as one had learned how to open her stall and went around the whole building to release all the other pigs so that they could, uh, so that they could be together. Every morning, the undercover reporter would take the pigs and lock them back up in their individual stalls for a day until the evening came and the female pig would let the others out again. All of these animals end up being transported long distances, unprotected from heat or cold. To save some money, they are not fed or watered on these trips. They are pushed, dragged, prodded, shocked, and beaten. Many fall and break legs or hips or are too sick to move. Those are called downers and are left where they lie to die, however long it takes. If the slaughterers get to them before they die, they attach chains to their legs and drag them to the kill floor. 
If the animals die first, they are used for pet food. God's dominion or Satan's dominion? Most beef cattle are raised in open rangeland throughout the West. Any animal that even remotely competes with them are considered vermin and killed on sight. The ranching industry is directly responsible for the eradication of scores of species, including eliminating, eliminating grizzlies, condors, wolverines, and wolves from most of the lower 48 states. Little prairie dogs have been killed by the billions for no other reason than that they dig burrows and eat grass. Hunters sit in lawn chairs beside a prairie dog colony and wait for the prairie dogs to stick their nose up out of the prairie dog holes, and then the hunters shoot them with their high-powered rifles and score points based on how badly mutilated the animals are. The rarest mammal in North America, the black-footed ferret, depended on prairie dog towns to survive. As the prairie dog colonies were destroyed, the black-footed ferret became virtually extinct, and now much cost and effort is expended trying to restore them to their previous homes. So we now spend millions of dollars to restore and save what we spent millions of dollars to destroy. For not only do the individual ranchers slaughter the animals, the government's wildlife services kills a million animals a year solely to benefit ranching. And how do they kill them? With traps and poisons that kill everything indiscriminately. They corner babies in their dens and gas or burn them to death. All of this bloodshed so that we can butcher the cows ourselves in our meat-addicted culture. We rake the oceans with drift nets that destroy everything in their path. Fish, dolphins, whales, birds. 75% of the world's fisheries are at the maximum sustainable level of fishing. Any increase in the fish killed would cause biological collapse, a chain reaction that leaves almost nothing left alive. The other 25% of the world's fisheries are already past the point of biological collapse. And when the fish disappear, we blame the animals, never ourselves. The seals, dolphins, and sharks become our scapegoats, and we wage war upon them. Dolphins are rounded up in Japan and elsewhere and hacked and stabbed to death. They are not killed for food, but only because they eat fish. The ocean turns solid red with the blood of these innocent, intelligent, sensitive creatures. God's dominion or Satan's dominion? Dairy cows are confined extensively. Their life is a constant cycle of being impregnated, giving birth, and having their day-old calves taken from them. The bond between mother and calf is as strong in, in cows as in every other large mammal, as the story of a mother cow in England demonstrates. <clears throat> when she gave birth, the farmer sold the calf to a farm and sold the mother to a different farm. The next morning, the farmer who had bought the mother discovered that she had broken out of her stall and was completely gone, totally disappeared, had no idea where she was. The farmer who had bought the calf came out that morning and found the calf nursing from his mother. The mother had traveled seven miles across unfamiliar terrain to a farm she had never seen before in her entire life to find her lost baby. What a wonderful example of motherly love and dedication. Female dairy cows are sent back into the system. Male cows are taken to veal stalls. There they are chained in a two-foot-wide box. They can stand up and lie down. Stand up and lie down. Nothing more. They are fed a nutrient-deficient diet to keep their flesh the right color. They are prevented from exercising to keep their muscles soft. For six months, they are purposely kept anemic and sick, 
also that their flesh may be provided as a delicacy. As has been aptly said, every glass of milk contains a slice of veal, for you cannot buy dairy products without supporting the veal industry. One of our Adventist colleges has a, had a flyer that I found promoting their animal science program. In it, they tell about what a great career you're going to have as a dairy farmer or running a cattle ranch and how much money you can make doing it. There in living color, I saw this picture of a student feeding a veal calf on the campus farm. Is this what we really want our colleges to be teaching at this time in Earth's history? Female dairy cows are so bloated by growth hormones and milk-producing drugs that their bodies are far too large and easily break down or become infected. They are treated as living machines and are disposed of in the same way. In 1899, Ellen White wrote, The light given me is that it will not be very long before we shall have to give up using any animal food. Even milk will have to be discarded. Has that time come? When she says it will not be very long, remember those words, because she uses those statements a year later in in, in, uh, 1902, three years later, in which she says animals are becoming more and more diseased, and it will not be long until animal food will be discarded by many besides Seventh-day Adventists. Has this prophecy come true? If this prophecy has come true, and the exact same wording that she used for the other one referring to us, what we need to be doing, then both of them have come true, and they are in fact long past. Has this time come, or will we still be saying that... The day is soon coming when we'll, be beginning, when we'll need to give up animal products as a small white cloud comes out of the sky. Now, I used to believe that because I ate no meat that I was free from causing cruelty, but I still ate eggs, and I was dismayed to learn how laying hens are treated in our society. In cages two feet square, up to nine full-size hens are jammed. They cannot spread a single wing. Their feathers are rubbed off. Soon they have open sores. In such crowds, cannibalism is common, so every hen has her beak sliced off at birth to cause her intense pain and suffering whenever she pecks at another chicken. Of course, all the male chicks are immediately killed by the millions because they have no use in the egg-laying industry. The ammonia buildup in the warehouses from their droppings of these hens is so bad that workers must wear masks when they enter the sheds, but the hens are forced to breathe at 24 hours a day. Wire floors are not good for chicken feet, and often their toes become enmeshed in the wire and they never free them again. If they are near the food, they survive. Come slaughter time, when their egg-laying rate slows, they are so violently removed from their cages that often feet and partial legs can be found in the empty cages, still attached to the wire floor. Now, if you want to know what it is like to be an egg-laying hen in our society, try this test. Once you go home tonight, get into a normal-sized car, that bring seven or eight other people with you. After everyone has squeezed in, roll up the windows, lock the doors, and never leave again for the next two years. That's the life of a battery hen today. I have a simple equation that I use now whenever I'm tempted to have an egg. One egg equals 22 hours. 22 hours is the average time between each egg laid by a hen in our system. 22 hours of absolute unrelenting misery of an innocent, helpless, suffering creation of God. 
One hard-boiled egg, 22 hours. A couple fried, 44. A large quiche or an omelet is worth days of suffering. All contained on one plate. God's dominion or Satan's dominion. Now, for thousands of years, much of people's food has been obtained by hunting and fishing. But with modern farming, hunting is now mainly for sport. There is no stronger indictment of the way we treat animals than that we kill them purely for fun and entertainment. Desire of Ages, page 356 to 357. Satan's hatred against God leads him to hate every object of the Savior's care. He seeks to mar the handiwork of God, and he delights in destroying even the dumb creatures. A better definition of sport hunting could not have been written. Millions destroyed every year in the U.S. alone, all for trophies and bragging rights. Safaris that kill one of every species of African antelope to have each variety of horns. To make it more fun, many hunters use as inefficient a weapon as possible. Bow and arrow users lose half the deer that they shoot. Those that escape end up dying by themselves from blood loss, infection, or from having the arrow penetrate deeper to a vital organ. State wildlife agencies build up game species for hunters at the expense of all other wildlife. Hunters cause an average of 1,100 human injuries per year and between 100 to 300 human deaths per year. This is far more than all causes of death from animals combined. And we have no campaign out there to, to get the hunters to stop it. And then there's sport fishing, merely hunting for fish. Now remember, fish are vertebrates with a nervous system that feels pain just like our nervous system does. They don't show it like other animals because we can't hear the sounds that they make without special equipment. Fish have the same social lives and emotional feelings as every other vertebrate. In South Africa, an aquarium had an Aranda goldfish named Big Red. Into Big Red's tank was put a severely deformed moor goldfish named Blackie. Now, Blackie could barely swim or move around the tank. From the start, Big Red sensed Blackie's helplessness and took it upon himself to be Blackie's friend. Big Red would pick Blackie up upon his back and help him around the tank to wherever he needed to go. In this way, when food was sprinkled onto the surface, Big Red would carry Blackie up to the surface so that they both could feed. This is, uh, at the time that this story was reported, it had been going on for over a year. This is altruism. The giving of oneself with no thought of reward, being shown from a small fish on a continuing basis to his friend. But no regard is ever given to fish, and the worst tortures are heaped upon them so that we can relax and enjoy the outdoors. The fish hooks that we use rip into their mouths with all the intensity that a nail would feel in our mouths. They use their mouth to examine their surroundings since they have no hands or paws. Often hooked fish lose their ability to eat until the gaping wound heals. Fish lose their protective coat of mucus by being handled by humans. Without it, they are susceptible to bacteria and waterlogged tissues, both of which can be fatal. Many fish are so exhausted by, the fisherman, by fighting the fisherman's line that when released, they go into shock for hours and are easily caught by predators. A Canadian study found that a hooked fish removed from the water for 60 seconds and then returned to the water has a 72% mortality rate. No one can tell me that it is more humane to catch and release when you have a 72% mortality rate of the fish that is being released. Those not thrown back slowly die by drowning in air. Sometimes it takes well over an hour. I have f watched fish being skinned alive as they struggled. 
Our casual acceptance of cruelty to fish because they look and act differently from other animals is based largely on our emotional attachments to animals that seem more like us. When our pleasure causes others pain, we fit the description of the pre-flood inhabitants in Patriarchs and Prophets, page 92. They delighted in destroying the life of animals, and the use of flesh for food rendered them still more cruel and bloodthirsty until they came to regard human life with astonishing indifference. Now, please understand that what I'm talking to you here about tonight is not part of a political agenda or the regular environmental issues being discussed by our society. Many meat-eating, hunting, fishing environmentalists would be very upset by what I'm talking to you about today. We must examine each of our activities involving animals to determine if we are following God's dominion or Satan's dominion and to take steps to change things if wrong is being done. Mrs. White had much to say about the North's responsibility for the Civil War. Testimonies, Volume 1, page 359. God is punishing the North that they have so long suffered the accursed sin of slavery to exist. God holds us responsible if we allow wrong to continue by our silence and apathy. To say it's not our problem is to shirk our God-given duty. Animals are abused on a continual basis to provide us with entertainment. Circus animals travel most of the year in tiny cages, unprotected from the weather. Look at any major circus and virtually every animal there has been or is being abused. A trainer was caught in the act <clears throat> beating an elephant to show other trainers how he had to do the job in order to make sure that the animal was so afraid of the trainer that he would never under any circumstances not do anything that the trainer didn't want him to do. And so he was showing the trainers how to do it and do it right. Then there are the blood sports such as bullfighting and cockfighting whose only aim is to kill the animals painfully. Even such a tradition as rodeo involves broken bones, pain, fear, and death as a matter of course. Greyhounds are taught to race using live rabbits hanging from the end of a pole. Of course, those greyhounds not fast enough are often killed, often in secret. Is abusing animals for entertainment God's dominion or Satan's dominion? The brutality and bloodshed displayed at rattlesnake roundups is almost too gruesome to describe. Gasoline is poured into rattlesnake dens and burrows to force them out. Many never recover from being so poisoned, and many animals that share those burrows, such as the gopher tortoise, become poisoned in the process as well as having their homes ruined. The gopher tortoise is actually getting closer and closer to extinction, in many cases due to this rattlesnake gassing. Every conceivable torture is inflicted on the rattlesnakes ripped from their wild homes. No protection or mercy of any kind is allowed for so vilified an animal by our society. They are burned, beheaded, crushed, blinded, stabbed, maimed, beaten, skinned, and eventually eaten in a carnival-type atmosphere. And they feel and suffer the same as every other animal would in the same circumstances. Mammals used for fur are killed in two ways. First are those raised on farms, such as mink, foxes, and chinchillas. They spend their short, miserable lives crowded into wire cages, unprotected from the weather, until they are killed by electrocution, strychnine, gas, or having their necks broken. Second are those caught in the wild with leg-hold traps. Traps catch anything that touches them, pet dogs and cats, songbirds, deer. For every fur animal caught in a trap, two such so-called trash animals are killed by the trap and thrown away by the trapper. 
Animals caught remain for hours or days until the trapper returns. Some chew off their leg and bleed to death elsewhere. The returning trapper does not want to damage the pelt, so they club, crush, or stomp the trapped animal to death. Around the world, most cat species are now endangered due to the fur industry. Seals and kangaroos are slaughtered endlessly. All of this bloodshed for fur-lined gloves, jacket trim, coats, knick-knacks, trivial souvenirs, alligator shoes, snakeskin belts, bearskin rugs, ostrich-skin wallets, six million fur bearers plus four million non-target trash animals killed every year for nothing at all but fashion and appearance. God's dominion or Satan's dominion. We lavish millions of dollars upon our pets, give them the best of attention and love, until we grow tired of them. If they become inconvenient or too expensive, then we dispose of them. Some people set them free in campgrounds, rest areas, in forests, and towns. Hardly any of these survive. Most of them die from disease, starvation, and being hit by cars. Those that live eke out a slim living. I once found a pair of skin and bone hunting dogs in a national forest that gorged themselves on the cat food that I put out for them. For every human being born in this country, 15 dogs and 45 cats are born as well, and there is nowhere for them to go. So we leave them at pounds, and that's where most die. Roughly 5 million companion animals are put to sleep every year. This works out to something like every five seconds, all because we will not take the effort to spay and neuter the pets in our care, and because we allow animal breeding puppy mills to continue to exist. Are we fulfilling our God-given duty of stewardship toward our most loyal friends? Parrots are being driven to the brink of extinction to supply the illegal pet trade. On their way to us, nine out of ten die, 90%. Those that survive end up as living curios, trapped in a cage forever for their color and beauty. Many live as long as we do, 80 or 90 years, forever cut off from the life they should be living. Tropical fish are caught with cyanide, and again, up to 90% dying en route to the pet store. But in addition, the coral reef and any non-target animals are left dead from the cyanide, all again so that they can end up in tiny tanks for our amusement. In the past, it was taught that the best way to learn about human anatomy and to learn about the theory of evolution was the di to dissect other species, such as frogs and cats. But modern advances in computer programs and detailed human models have made such studies obsolete. Because of dissection, many wild populations of frogs have been wiped out, and it is not uncommon for lost or stolen dogs and cats to end up on the classroom table. We must not devalue life by killing just because it's convenient. Dissection is literally a dead-end education. We should teach the most important lesson of all, the respect for life. Now, the one area that we need to examine very carefully is whether we can cause animal suffering to save human life. This is an important subject, needs careful thought. Is experimentation on animals a justified practice? First, we need to note that we experiment all the time on humans to test new products. These are called clinical tests, and they only involve volunteers. We must always remember that animals and tests are never volunteers. They have absolutely no choice. So we must strive very hard to limit such tests to only the absolutely crucial. We cannot cause their suffering for trivial, repetitive, 
or useless tests. We must examine animal research on a case-by-case basis to determine its merits. One major area of animal research is cosmetic testing. Dozens of rabbits per test are enclosed in metal boxes with only their heads protruding. Then various substances are poured into their eyes to see how much damage is done. Go into your bathroom or laundry and try to find any product that has not been tested in this way. It can't be done. Bleach, hairspray, shampoo, mascara, detergent are all being used to blind rabbits in pointless tests. Other animals are force-fed large quantities of toothpaste, lipstick, or creams until half the animals succumb to convulsions, paralysis, and death. Others have chemicals applied to their bare skin, causing massive chemical burns to measure skin irritancy levels. The companies that continue these tests say that it is for public safety and because the tests are required by law. That is a lie. No law requires it. And over 600 companies that never test on animals and have pledged to never do so in the future prove the truth of that. Avon, Revlon, Toms of Maine are only a few examples of the hundreds of companies that do not test on animals. Results of cosmetic tests are only valid on the animal species they were performed on. To help humans, tests would need to show the exact amount of the substance required to injure a human, which these tests never show. Every time we buy a product from companies that test on animals, such as Procter & Gamble or Colgate, we are saying to them, it's all right to do this. You don't need to change. Here's some more money to blind rabbits. We are making it possible for the suffering to continue by our buying choices. Modern alternative tests that do not use animals and are as accurate or better than animal tests are readily available, but companies will not switch until we force them to by our wallet. Another vast area that <clears throat> involves animals inclu- involves in psychology tests. These are done with the stated purpose of discovering how the animals themselves think, learn, and develop. They are not intended to show anything about humans, except to evolutionists who want to show how our behavior evolved from monkey behavior. Endless tests are done on every variety of animal to find out how they react to punishment, such as electric shock. Now, finding out how dogs suffer from electric shock and the lengths that they will go to avoid it is in no way a benefit for humans, and it certainly is not a benefit for dogs. Young monkeys are placed in smooth-walled wells of despair for days, weeks, and months at a time. They have no light, no interaction, nothing to touch or feel for the entire time. The point is to see how they react socially after their isolation. Not surprisingly, they are severely psychologically damaged, spending the rest of their life huddling in corners, arms held around their bodies, terrified of everyone and everything. As sad a case as any are the monkeys taken from their mothers at birth and given to fake mothers that look and feel like monkeys but act very differently. Designed to be monsters, these fake mothers become red hot or ice cold, eject compressed air, or hurl the baby away from them. Others eject sharp brass spikes from every surface of their body, impaling any baby that won't let go. The terrified monkeys have no real mother to turn to, nowhere to go. They wait for their mother to stop hurting them and then crawl back onto it until the next time that their mother becomes a monster. All monkeys raised like this are forever mentally unstable and are unable to interact with normal monkeys. Their lives become constant isolation and fear. God's dominion or Satan's dominion. The researcher who conducted these tests was also the editor of a magazine that published psychology test results. 
Over the years, he reviewed thousands of tests to decide which should be published. He made a very interesting comment about the tests he reviewed. Most experiments are not worth doing, and the data attained are not worth publishing. A telling comment from a defender of all research. In 2006, the online version of the British Medical Journal presented the unreliability of animal testing this way. Animal studies are of limited usefulness to human health because they are of poor quality and their results often conflict with human trials. If the experts don't trust the results of vivisection, then why should we? The unfortunate reality is that most tests done have been done before. Tests done over 100 years ago are still being done with only minor variations and nothing new being learned. There is such a mind-numbing mountain of tests conducted that no researcher is able to keep up on what has been done before. Many researchers come up with new variations to ensure a continued flow of grant money, not because anything important will be discovered. Albert Einstein defined insanity as doing the same thing over and over again and expecting a different result. If a test benefits human life, then we can understand its value. But what about those tests that are incapable of benefiting humans in any way? A famous series of tests have been performed by Dr. Robert White, a vocal spokesperson for unrestricted, unlimited animal tests. His tests involve cutting off the heads of monkeys and switching them, transplanting heads on still living beings and keeping them alive. Can humans in any way benefit from head transplanting? The only one I can think of is Frankenstein. One final area that I'll mention is in the area of drug testing. Now, surely we would think, in this case, that it would be necessary to test a new product, a new drug, to make sure if it was safe before we marketed it to human beings. A government study was conducted on every new drug marketed between 1976 and 1985. The study found that half of those drugs had been relabeled or withdrawn because they were found to be more dangerous on people than the animal tests had indicated. In this country, we use 40,000 different types of pesticides. Every single type of pesticide has been proven safe using animal testing. Does anyone really believe that all 40,000 of those pesticides are truly safe based on that? One pesticide no longer used in the U.S., although it's used in other countries, that is also pr proven safe using animal tests was DDT. And we all know how dangerous and lethal that one turned out to be, not only to the animals, but to us as well. Animal research can often be used as a wax nose to prove whatever the researcher wishes. Government agencies using animal tests have been proving for years that cigarettes are addictive and harmful. Meanwhile, tobacco-run animal tests have been proving for those same amount of years that cigarettes are not addictive or harmful. And these tests continue to this day by both sides proving whatever the researcher wants them to prove. But how can this be? How can the results of the tests of these animals be so different between humans and animals? The reality is that every species is a different biological and biochemical entity. Each reacts differently to any given substance. Aspirin kills cats. Penicillin kills guinea pigs. When they first tested penicillin, they had actually just run out of guinea pigs that they would normally have used to test the penicillin. If they had used it on the guinea pigs, they would have been <coughs> fatal, the, the guinea pigs would have died, and they would have no clue the, of the effectiveness in penicillin in treating certain things. But the same guinea pigs can safely eat strychnine, one of the deadliest poisons for humans, but not for monkeys. Sheep can swallow enormous quantities of arsenic. 
potassium cyanide, deadly for humans, is harmless for owls. Insulin produces deformities in infant rabbits and mice. A dose of opium that would kill a man is harmless to dogs and chickens. These are only a fraction of such examples. A list of this type is, by definition, infinite, because every substance used will have different results on different species and even between different strains of the same species. One more example, however, needs to be told. About 30 or 40 years ago, some scientists thought there might be promise in an extract from the bark of the Pacific yew tree in treating certain forms of cancer. So they infected healthy animals with cancer and then used the extract to treat them. No result occurred. There was no improvement. The scientists decided that the extract was useless and moved on. Now, the Pacific yew is a small, scraggly, understory tree that only grows in the Pacific Northwest. Lumbermen dislike it because it is worthless for timber, and they usually cut and burn it. Here's a picture that I took up in Washington of a yew tree that started growing in 1865, showing how they don't very grow very large, even over long time spans. A decade ago, scientists decided to try again with the yew extract, but this time they used clinical human tests instead of animals. The results were astonishing. The extract was extremely effective on certain forms of cancer. In fact, it was the most promising treatment to come along in ages. But now there was a serious problem. For 30 years, lumbermen had been wastefully destroying yews as a trash tree. There was now hard to find enough yew trees to provide the extract. So two drastic consequences resulted from our faith in animal testing. First, the treatment of cancer patients was delayed for three decades. Secondly, for all that time, the main source of the treatment was allowed to be foolishly destroyed instead of being utilized. How many other life-saving drugs have been lost to us in this way? In this U case, our reliance upon animal tests has actually cost human life. We must ask ourselves if the cases of vivisection that we have looked at here tonight and many others truly save human life, and if not, then why are they allowed to continue? Tens of millions of animals suffer and are killed in U.S. labs every year. I wish everyone could see the things that I have learned in the last decade, could see behind the closed doors of the lab, monkeys with steel bolts drilled into their skulls to hold in electronic attachments wired into their brains. The monkeys are not given any anesthesia in this process, as it is said that that would interfere with the results of the test. A simple question I would have, does screwing steel bolts into a monkey's brain without anesthesia affect the results of the test in and of itself. Chimpanzees are infected with the HIV virus. They can't get AIDS, of course. Nothing we have succeeded in doing has given them that, uh, that particular disease. But once infected, they can never be let out of their cage again. They are a carrier. They spend their entire lives in a cell the size of a closet. They can live that way for 40 or 50 years, all alone in the dark. Sitting there with nothing to do, they slowly go insane, rocking back and forth, circling endlessly, biting their hands and feet, banging their head on the wall. They are living death and a live testament of our treatment of animals. We need a new perception from the animal creation, from that which we have inherited. We lavish attention, time, and money upon our cats and dogs. 
Pets are wonderful. Everyone loves kittens and puppies. But beyond them, things change. Cows and chickens are for eating. That's what God made them for. Ducks and moose are here to be hunted. The only possible purpose of a fish is to be impaled upon a hook. All predators are pure evil and must be eradicated. The only good snake is a dead snake. We think animals are beautiful in pictures and nature films, but let them do anything that causes us the slightest inconvenience, and the first solution proposed is to kill them. We marvel at the colors of a butterfly and unthinkingly squash every moth we can find, when in reality moths are virtually identical to butterflies. For woe unto any animal that doesn't meet with our standard of beauty. Everyone knows all about bats and spiders, octopuses and snakes. They are ugly, so they must be bad. The reality is that most people know next to nothing about such animals, and what they do know is 95% nonsense. Test yourself, true or false. Bats fly into people's hair. Bats suck blood. Tarantulas swarm onto people, biting them to death. Snakes leap out of trees to strangle people. Octopuses pull swimmers down to their death. Of course, all of these are false, as are hundreds of other stories that I know we've all grown up with, passed on, stories passed on from generation to generation, created hundreds of years ago, are considered virtually gospel truth by us. Until we throw away the myths, we will never appreciate animals for the way they really are, living, breathing, feeling creations of God with their own lives and purposes in God's plan. We may not understand those purposes, and it may in fact have nothing to do with us, but that in no way eliminates the importance of their acts. As an illustration of our thoughtlessness and the caring for the animal creation entrusted to our dominion, I have here a list of those animals that are currently on the list of endangered species. Now, obviously, you're not going to be able to read this, and I'm not going to intend you to read it, but you can get the idea of what we're talking about. Both sides, in small print. There is over a thousand species on this list, as well as not even including the hundreds of species that have gone extinct in the last 500 years. And once we lose them, we can't get them back, no matter how much we may want to. They are gone forever. The question has often been asked. These are terrible things that I'm showing here. But what can we really do about it? How can we have any effect upon what is going on? We often feel helpless to stop wrongs being done, but we actually have more influence than we realize in our daily lives. In this presentation, I have carefully chosen only those issues that we in this country can have an impact on. There are three steps that we can all take to save the lives of animals. I am not asking you to go out and pick at McDonald's. I am not asking you to join every animal protection group in existence. What I am asking is for us to examine our own personal lives and eliminate anything that we are causing cruelty. Number one, never directly cause an animal to die. Hunting and fishing are obvious, but just as deadly are meat and fur. Every time we buy any fur or ivory or meat, we directly cause animals to die. Don't kill that snake. It's not out to get you. There is never any justification to kill any non-venomous snake in North America, and only in the most unusual and extreme cases should venomous ones be killed. 
They are vitally important to their ecosystems and only use their venom for two reasons, to catch food and to defend themselves. Leave them alone and they will leave you alone. Find non-lethal solutions to the animals in your backyards that annoy you. Whole books are available detailing how to deal with backyard animals humanely. Death should never be the first option. Number two, never indirectly cause an animal to die. By buying milk and eggs, cosmetics and toothpastes tested on animals, or animals from a pet store, we allow and fund the suffering and death of animals to continue. When we visit places like circuses and marine parks that exploit and abuse animals, we make it profitable for them to exist. Most animal abuse exists only because it is profitable. When people stop giving money to the abusers, the suffering and death will stop. And don't say that you're only one person and can't have any impact. A vegetarian saves the lives of hundreds of animals by his food choices. As with spreading the gospel, our task is to help save the individual, not to look at the unsaved billions and give up. Number three, educate others of what is going on. Tell your family and friends of what you have learned here tonight. Express how much these things bother you. Vivisection exists only because the majority of people are unaware of what is happening. Abuse thrives on secrecy. You have an opportunity in this Loma Linda campus to not participate in those aspects of animal cruelty that are done here on this campus and happen all the time. And you do not have to participate in it and contribute to that suffering and death. If we would accept these three steps, we would save countless lives. We as individuals can make a difference if we will only make the effort. It is our duty and responsibility as God's caretakers of his creation. As long as we allow and or participate in the cruelty to animals that I, as I have described here, we will forever come short of Christ's admonition that we read at the beginning in Matthew 5:48. Be therefore perfect, even as your Father in heaven is perfect. We cannot have the character of God when we are tainted with such cruelty. We, as followers of Christ, are to be an example to the world and universe of his law working in his people's lives. When we fulfill the dominion principle, we will have taken one more step toward that goal. Now, in this presentation, I've shown our responsibility to animals and the ways in which we've mishandled it. I very much condensed what could have been said, as books have been written on virtually every subject that I've talked about here tonight. But it can be summed up further yet in one brief passage by Ellen White. Everything I've talked about here tonight is embraced by it. This is in Patriarchs and Prophets, page 442 to 443. Balaam had given evidence of the spirit that controlled him by his treatment of his beast. A righteous man regardeth the life of his beast, but the tender mercies of the wicked are cruel. Few realize as they should the sinfulness of abusing animals or leaving them to suffer from neglect. He who created man made the lower animals also, and his tender mercies are over all his works. The animals were created to serve man, but he has no right to cause them pain by harsh treatment or cruel exaction. It is because of man's sin that the whole creation groaneth and travaileth together. Suffering and death were thus entailed, not only upon the human race, but upon the animals. Surely, then, it becomes man to seek to lighten, instead of increasing, the weight of suffering which his transgression has brought upon God's creatures. He who will abuse animals because he has them in his power is both a coward and a tyrant. 
A disposition to cause pain, whether to our fellow men or the brute creation, is satanic. Many do not realize that their cruelty will ever be known, because the poor dumb animals cannot reveal it. But could the eyes of these men be opened, as were those of Balaam, they would see an angel of God standing as a witness to testify against them in the courts above. A record goes up to heaven, and a day is, is coming when judgment will be pronounced against those who abuse God's creatures. I can add nothing to that, but to ask that we please allow that day to come soon for the animals' lives and the vindication of God's character are in our hands. Let us remember the words in Isaiah 11.9. They shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain. Now, as I finish up here, I want to be very clear about a few things. I have not shown these pictures to break your heart, even though they broke my heart many years ago. The reason I have shown these pictures to you is to impress upon the reality of what is going on on this planet of sin. It's real. It's happening. It exists. It's going on behind closed doors. It's going on in the open. It's going on everywhere. Animal abuse is a serious problem. It's not a minor problem that can be shuffled to the side as not relevant because it's not being done to humans. It is a serious thing that is destroying the lives of creatures and the souls of those who are doing it. Now, this is something that we have been building to today with our creation emphasis. The creation of life on this planet matters because it is God's creation. If it was evolution that was responsible for life on this earth, then it really makes absolutely difference what I do to another species or even to my own because it's tooth and claw, bite your way to the top, kill and kill and kill again because that's the only way evolution advances. But if God made life on this planet, then it is his creation, not ours, and we have to be responsible to the creation that God has given to us. It is our duty, as spelled out in the Bible and by Ellen White's counsel, what we are talking about here tonight. This is a <clears throat> another reason why the seven-day creation is very important. We read in Exodus how in one commandment of the Bible, in the, in the fourth commandment, we have Sabbath worship, we have the creation of, of all on this planet, and we have compassion for animals, all contained in this one commandment, which we consider to be the most important commandment of the entire ten. This is all part of the vindication of God's character that my dad has been here and talked about many times before. As long as we are participating in cruelty, we will never cleanse ourselves of this state of defilement because we have to eliminate these things from our lives. Animal abuse will continue on this planet till the second coming. We are not going to stop it by picketing. We are not going to stop it by anything that we can do with legislation or anything like that. That does not mean that we can ignore it. Human abuse will not, will not end on this planet till the second coming. 
Child abuse will not end on this planet until the second coming. There is no form of abuse that is going to be stopped by anything that we are doing today in any form of moral advocacy that will end it. But that does not mean that we should be child abusers or slave owners or pornographers or any of the other ways that our society is wretched. We cannot participate in animal abuse because we say it is going to end, it's not going to end anyway, so it doesn't make any difference what we do. It does matter because we personally are responsible and we have to get rid of this in our lives in every way that we possibly can. And once that takes place, that's another piece of the puzzle in sanctifying our characters and getting us to the point of the final generation of God's people. Now, that is why I've brought this presentation to you. This was not a fun presentation like the first two was. It was not a pleasant presentation to show beautiful pictures of animals, even though there were some beautiful pictures of animals in this presentation. But the point of this is to show us that there is a real serious thing that we all have to examine our own lives and see how it affects us and those around of us. We impact the lives of animals by our food choices, by our, our, what we buy in the stores, and what we do in our backyards. It all has impacts on the lives of animals, and we can all do better, everyone included, myself included. And this is not some holier-than-thou attitude because we all have steps to make in this regard. But we all can do it, and this is something we all can do in a great way to help ourselves and the animals around us. Now, that is the end of the presentation. What I'm going to do now is we're going to open it up for questions and allow anyone to uh, ask any questions on this because I know you're going to have questions based on, on this plus anything else you have for the previous day. Sundown is now. At the back of the building will be uh, my fiance, Delise. She will have uh, anything you want of these, today's presentations. Everything that you've seen today is available on DVD. Um, the ones for the morning presentations are available in the version for adults as well as the version for children. Also, what you just saw is also available on a DVD if you want to share it with others and, and show others of what is going on, what is happening. So that is available for you to get back there. Talk to her. She has all those things back there. Also, I want to make it possible for you to have resources that will help you to take steps in this manner, <clears throat> to learn to get uh, these things out of our lives. One way that is very easy is to not buy the products that are tested on animals in the cosmetic testing. Back at the back will be a table with a stack of little leaflets. Each one of those lists the companies that do not test on animals. Those are free. Take them. They're yours. Um, get there and get them first. You know, I, I'm hoping they will last for everyone who wants one, but uh, if not, we'll, we'll see what we can do. Those are very small pocket-sized uh, lists that you can take wherever you go shopping. I also have 10 copies of extremely detailed lists of all the companies that both do and do not test on animals, giving addresses, websites, all kind of contact information for where you can, uh, for anything you want to know. I have only a few of those. You have to come and ask those from me personally. I have those up here with me. I have only a few of those, first come, first serve. Those are an easy step that you can use to make uh, steps to help animals. As a second thing, there will also be a, a rectangle leaflet back there that lists a website put together by a sincere young Adventist a young lady in Wisconsin who has put together a website called freemindcuisine.org. <clears throat> and that is a way of showing how our diet impacts our own health and the lives of animals. It's a, it gives stories of animals, it gives recipes, it gives all sorts of good stuff. Take one of those and get online with that because it's a very good site being put together by her. Also, now this is for what I told you at the uh, beginning of the day. We're also going to have a free gift for everybody, and that is also in line to help us 
to have resources available for uh, what uh, you can do to help animals. And that will be a copy of my book, Animals, Ethics, and Christianity. I'm going to give it out to everyone here who wants one. We have two boxes of them, and they will be at the back door and I think at the front door here. And so anyone who wants them, uh, I'm going to have people back there handing them out to whoever uh, needs them. And so please take one. If you know someone who you want desperately to have it, get, take one for them too. Um, I'm hoping we'll have enough for everybody. We have two boxes, but I think that should cover everyone. In the back of that book, there is a large section that I put into that book listing groups around the country that work on animal protection in various areas. I've listed them according to what they do, but by telling whether one works on hunting issues or one works on various uh, cosmetic or vivisection or, or whatever. I list them according to these different things, tell it where, what each does. And those are, again, contact information and websites when available. And so use that reference to go deeper and learn what you need to do to uh, get rid of these things out of our lives. And so that is my gift to you. This has never been done before. I've never given these books out before. This is a one-time only opportunity to get them for free. And so they will be available back there for whoever wants them. And so at this point, I thank you very much for your attention. I thank you very much for your, uh, your acceptance of something that was very hard to take. And we ask now that uh, if anybody has any questions, I will be free to uh, take as many questions as you want. Um, I have two questions. Um, the first is, what do you think about the use of leather and suede? Mm-hmm. A lot of our Bibles are covered in leather. And yes. Many of us are wearing leather shoes. Mm -hmm. And the second has to do with, this is kind of a broader question I have about to what extent we should be concerned about supporting industries that might practice cruelty. I mean, it just seems like the list could become endless. And what what do you know about, for instance, wool, the wool industry? Mm -hmm. I don't know anything about it. Just a question. Okay, well, these are uh, two dealing with um, clothing issues, and that's a very real issue of what we put on our bodies. Now, I very much put into this presentation black and white issues, those that I could, you know, that I can show clearly is absolutely wrong, and there's no no doubt about it. Leather and wool get into those gray areas, and that's why they were not included in the presentation, because you get into various different uh, factors dealing with that. Let's start with wool. Wool is raised in... North America, in Australia, in places like that, in large amounts of uh, ranching territory. And uh, the sheep themselves are not abused as such in the fact of their wool being removed from them. It's a very, you know, when done right, it's a very natural thing. You can remove the wool, that's no big deal. The way they do it in Australia is diabolical. I did not include pictures of that because it's too gory. It is one of the most horrendous, graphically despicable things you've ever seen because they not only shear the sheep, they actually cut the flesh of the sheep and remove chunks of flesh from these animals. They then ship off these sheep after a couple years to Arab countries so that the Arabs can slaughter them in ritual sacrifices. And in these process, these animals are unbelievably cruelly treated on their way to Arabia. Um, Australian sheep industry is insane. It's just absolutely horrible, and I would never buy any wool from Australia for those reasons. North American wool industry is not as bad. It's not as cruel. Um, More of an indirect thing with the wool industry in North America because other animals are killed 
that are competitors, like wolves and bears and things like that. Those animals are killed. So there is a suffering involved in that, but it's not quite as direct. So it's not quite as black and white with the North American wool industry. Um, for those people who feel that that's uh, an important thing to eliminate from their um, clothing, um, I'm all in support of that because of the indirect causes of cruelty we're dealing with here. And I personally haven't bought wool for a long time. Um, so it is an issue, but it's not quite the same as fur, where you're directly killing an animal for that creature's fur. Now, with leather, it gets even more gray, because there you're dealing with not only the fact that this is a, a skin being killed for it, but really, it's not because of the skin that that cow is being killed. It's being killed for meat in our horribly meat-addicted culture. And so you have meat eaters driving that industry, and leather is sold as a byproduct of that industry. If every person on this, in this entire country tomorrow stopped buying any leather, not one life would be saved, because all the meat would still be killed for meat, and the leather would be thrown away, whatever. It would make no difference. And so it is actually a very uh, much sideline thing for them. It just adds to their profit margin. It's not the reason the cows are being killed. And so it's not really the same thing as fur or even the wool. Um, again, if you don't want to support the entire meat industry, you don't want to buy leather because you don't want to be handing money to them to do whatever they want. Um, but it's not the same thing where you're not, you're not saving a life. It's more of a token gesture. It's more of a moral symbolic support. I have not bought any leather since the 1980s. I still wear the shoes that I bought in 1980s to this day, and I have not replaced them because they've lasted, and I will continue to wear them because there's no life that can be saved or lost based on whether or not I throw them away. And so if they wear out, I will get from that point forward a non-leather pair of shoes. It's no big deal for me. But uh, whether or not my Bible has leather on it, I'm not going to make a big issue about it. I'm not going to browbeat anyone. I'm not going to say that this is wrong and you have to stop it or else. That is totally an individual, personal thing, whether or not that's something that you want to do as a, another step to not have any monetary support of the meat industry. So that one is definitely a gray area, and I don't talk about that in any public presentation as saying this is what has to be done. I only, ask, I only talk about it when people ask questions like that. So the question becomes, can we eliminate all sources of cruelty without becoming a hermit and not supporting anything? And the answer to that is yes and no. There are the blatant forms of cruelty which I've shown here and described, which we can put at arm's distance. Whether or not every last thing we're doing is going to end up supporting Procter and Gamble and General Motors because they own the world, you know, you're not going to end up really, you know, it, it's, it's kind of a to token gesture in that respect. But the fact that we will be reducing individual things will have a benefit for ourselves and will have an impact on the industries in a small way. And the more people that do it, it's a large way. And so, yes, it does have an impact, but you can't just stop buying stuff because we have to continue to live. And so the point is to choose our things very carefully and make sure that what we're doing is the least amount of cruelty possible. Like to, my name is, is Jack Staden. I'm one of the pediatric residents mm -hmm. here. Mm -hmm. um, you spoke about uh, some of the abuses that have taken place yes. in animal um, research. Yes. Uh, I just wanted to point out that here at Loma Linda, uh, they have an institutional review board that mm -hmm reviews all research uh, projects and they work really hard to make sure that projects that are done uh, balance the benefit to human health and mm -hmm. to scientific progress with the potential suffering that animals undergo. Mm -hmm. uh, 
Um, it's not just, you know, any, any scientist just decides, or doctor, oh, I'm going to do this, that, you know, yes. um, beat up uh, rats or whatever. Yes. It's very carefully controlled here at Loma Linda. Um, and I, I mean, I, I think probably that's a, a good thing mm -hmm. yes. that just yes. wanted to mention. And like I said, I, I'm not advocating the um, eliminating all labs from all medical research things that have a benefit to people. I did not say that. I said the trivial, repetitive, and useless ones, and I showed examples of that. And so if, an, if it doesn't qual if, it can, if it can be shown conclusively that this is something that actually has a benefit on a large scale, I'm not going to be fighting that. My point is to say that most of what is done in animal research as a body, and I'm talking about here the, the university system and whatnot, and the corporate system, most of what is done is falling into those trivial, repetitive, and useless categories. And that if we could eliminate those, if we could agree on the ones that are trivial, repetitive, and useless, and eliminate those, and get it down to those bare minimums, I'm not going to make a big deal about it. I'm not going to say that human life has to be sacrificed in order to save the animal life, because animal life, we can do certain things based on the principles that I talked about here. But it has to be done very carefully, and it has to be done very, very um, thoughtfully, not to ever do anything that falls into those categories. Which I think is precisely what the Institution of Review Board I would hope so. Focus should be. I would hope so. Thank you. Yep. <clears throat> One um, sort of question that uh, has occasionally been answer, asked by, uh, to people from PETA, and uh, they have difficulty answering this. If, um, I'm assuming you do have a clear um, hierarchy in that, let's say that you have uh, two cats and a baby in a burning building and you can mm -hmm. only grab one of them at a time, you go for the baby first. Mm -hmm. um, <clears throat> that's, an, that's an important point. Yes, it is. Um, the second thing is, it's probably fair to say that even if one has a, a project that would justify taking animal life in order to save human life in the future, um, that one is still obligated to give the animal the benefit of whatever one would do, including uh, anesthesia, for example. Mm -hmm. Yes. Okay, um, just to uh, comment on that, <clears throat> there are those who advocate that all life is equal, whether it's human or whatever. And so uh, that is not what I'm advocating. Um, I, I, I'm not in, saying that in any way. Um, the example that you used of the, uh, if, you, if you had a choice of uh, rescuing the, the animal or the, uh, the baby, you would, which would you choose? And so the choice would obviously be the baby. The question also could be asked, if there were two babies, one was your own and one was somebody else's, which would you save first, if you could only save one? And the answer to that is the one that you would save is, the, is your own baby. That does not mean that the other baby has any less value. Both ba babies are valuable. And in the same way, the cat is, is valuable, 
as well as the baby. And so it's not an equal value, but it doesn't imply a distinction so vast that we have animals down here in the mud and, and, the, and humans up here on this angelic plane where we're so far above everything else. So it is a valid truth that you will save the baby first, but it is also a truth that we will save those that are special to us first as well in a, in a different scenario. And so the point is not so much differentiation of value, but what is valuable to us as a species, as a person, as an individual. And, that, and the baby will be more valuable to us as a species than the animal. And so you get into various ethical uh, const uh, discussions here on this, and it's, uh, it's a very valid point, though. And it's nothing that I'm saying here in any way uh, advocates that we should save the cat first. The point is that if we have time, we should save both. Have, have you got any answers for gophers under your fruit trees or ants in your garden? Yes, and, yes I do. <laughs> and and uh, black widows <laughs> yes. around your house? That's right. No, you see now, we, we, since we live in a world of sin and since we deal with a lot of these problem animals that uh, you could list a whole bunch more than that if you wanted to, we are dealing with animals that cause us serious problems in eating our plants, in our food plants, uh, damaging our property, um, causing us to be, uh, have difficulties. And so with insects, I wasn't even really talking so much about insects here tonight. I was talking about the vertebrate animals, the ones that feel pain. I referred a few times to moths to show the illustration between moths and butterflies. But what I'm really talking about here is vertebrate animals. And so, I mean, the answer in your house, you kill them. You just, you get rid of them. You know, they're not supposed to be there. They're, they're causing you problems. You have to deal with them. And that is not a sin. And that's not a way of, of saying that uh, we have to uh, become a Jainist, oh, like over in India, where you can't squash a bug or eat a cauliflower because there might be a bug inside that cauliflower. And so we're not talking about that here. We're talking about the reasonable, intelligent uh, dominion of animal life. And so, yeah, we have to deal with some of these insect pests. Now, a lot of the insects we kill are not pests. This is something that is actually way overdone because any bug we see, squash it. When in reality, most of those bugs are actually neutral or beneficial to us. And so we want those bugs around and we should ed educate ourselves in which bugs are harmful, which ones are not harmful. Black widows are harmful. We can't have them around the house because they can bite us when we put our hand on them. They're actually not aggressive. They're very timid. But if you put your hand on them in the dark, they're going to get you. And so you don't want them around. You don't want your cats around them. And so you don't want your dogs around them. So they're around the house. You have to kill them. I've killed so many black widows that you have no idea. I have a ton of them around my house. And so it's just, you know, it's, it happens every year. I go up there, clean out the house, kill all the black widows, and we move on. And so you can't <clears throat> say that that's a necessary thing. Now, off in the woods, off in the wild, doing their own thing, you know, there's no reason to go search them out and destroy them because they're actually beneficial in their own way. Most spiders, however, are extremely beneficial, and they don't fall into the same category as black widows because they're not dangerous to us. Very few spiders are actually dangerous to us in the sense that they will aggressively bite us and inject venom that causes us anything and things like that. Most spiders have jaws so small they can't even bite our skin. And these guys are actually extremely beneficial around the house because they're killing the insect pests and they're eating up the bugs that we'd re I'd rather have a spider up in the corner than a mosquito coming down and biting me in the middle of the night. And that mosquito is going to get caught by that web more often than not unless we take out the web. And so uh, for every spider we're killing, we're letting a hundred pest flying insects survive. And I'd sure rather have the spider around. And so we need to be much more educated and much more ju um, judicious about which animals we're killing and which animals we just take outside with a cup or whatever and uh, do it that way. And so we need to be more careful with that. Gophers, again, 
are a nuisance because they uh, dig up the hills and they eat the plants and all that kind of stuff. There are humane ways of dealing with gophers, and there is a book available called uh, The Humane uh, um, Way of Dealing with Backyard Animals, and I don't have that book with me. I'm, I'm out of a suitcase right now, so I'm not actually having all my materials with me that I normally have, but uh, it is a book available dealing, detailing specific ways to deal with backyard animal uh, problems, and it goes through every species you can possibly imagine, including gophers and moles and, and squirrels and chipmunks and the whole bit, and showing what works in non-lethal control, what doesn't work in non-lethal control, and which ways are the best ones in the humane way of dealing with them. And so if nothing works, I mean, if you try all the humane ways and nothing absolutely works and you have to get rid of them, well, you have to get rid of them. And that's not, uh, that's not to say that you're sinning by doing so, but we need to look at the humane options first as an opportunity of doing it in the compassionate way, if, if at all possible. I think one point that uh, that should be uh, brought up is that doing it in a humane way is as important for us as it is for them. Yes, that's right. Um, Jeffrey Dahmer got his start by, yes. by being cruel to animals. That's right. And there is... There is it's arguable that murder is harder on the person who murders than it is on the person yes. who gets murdered. Yes, I agree. That's totally right. And, and uh, yeah. the, the real problem with us treating nature like dirt is that we start feeling like nature is dirt. Mm -hmm. We start feeling like each other are dirt, and pretty soon we start treating each other that way. And pretty soon we have lost... Uh, the image of God that was in us to begin with. That's exactly right. And Ellen White makes that clear in her statements, and it has been proven true using all of the uh, psychology cases where people have shown that they started out killing little stuff and moved on to big stuff and moved on to people and all that sort of thing. It has been very much a demonstration of the hardening of the soul. My dad was, uh, like my, I told you, my grandfather raised chickens, and he did it for show. And they were show chickens on the whole West Coast, and my grandfather was one of the experts in the breeds that he raised. And uh, he had tons of chickens. I mean, he had chickens all over the place. And when he had a sick one, when he had one that wasn't exactly right in the color feather pattern, that chicken had to go. And guess whose job that was? It was my dad's. And uh, my dad was a vegetarian who didn't like to kill and didn't like to kill anything on his plate or in the backyard, but he, that was you go kill that chicken. And his grandfather was a very stern, dictatorial person in these matters, and so my dad went out and killed that chicken. And my dad has testified uh, to me personally and in public, he said how every time he had to do that, he felt himself hardening inside, both as a defense mechanism and just as a natural result of killing. And he felt himself growing hard, and he hated it. And he just was turned off by that. And uh, fortunately, he didn't have to do it for very long before he you know, grew up and uh, moved out, and so it was um, something that, uh, you know, he got over. But, yeah, uh, as whenever you, s you see a life, and instinctually you know that animal is suffering. I mean, you get a lot of philosophers, and you get a lot of, uh, you know, scientists who want to go with the Descartes method of saying that animals don't feel pain, and they don't have emotion, and all this kind of stuff. And, I mean, they, they, they put on this load of nonsense, but, I mean, instinctively, you know that's not true. You see an animal, you see it uh, squealing, you, you, you see it running away from danger, you know that creature is, is aware. And when you are willing in your mind to say, you know what, that creature has a life of its own, and my whims are more important than that, and I'm going to cause that life to no longer exist because of my whims, that hardens you. It, it, it damages your soul. And it's, it's a very real problem that when we look at the destruction in our world and the way people kill each other on a regular basis. 
it's a large part of that problem. Yep. If we are done, then I will let everyone go. Okay, <laughs> go rescue the cat. <laughs>